Hello, everyone. We originally recorded this episode with Dr. Michal Bitone on May 4th, 2022, as part of our Learning About Learning webinar series. We're delighted to release it now as an episode of our podcast. In this episode, Michal and I spoke about one of the chapters of her current book project, which is an ethnographic study of the Syrian Jewish community. Michal talked with me about the ways that the Syrian Jewish community doesn't really fit the typical paradigm of American Jews. She doesn't only mean that they act differently or look differently, but more fundamentally, they don't fit the basic theoretical frameworks that we tend to use when we think and talk about American Jews. They tend not to emphasize the individual self in the same way. They tend not to value autonomy and agency in the same way. Instead, she explained that the most important subject for the Syrian Jewish community is the community itself. This conversation is particularly relevant to Jewish educators and Jewish professionals because it helps us to think about education as something that happens not just inside schools, but in every interaction with other members of a community that helps people to learn how to live their lives in particular ways. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Michal as much as I enjoy talking with her. Hello and welcome to the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for Studies in Jewish Education at Brandeis University. My name is John Levison. I'm the director of the Mandel Center and I'm delighted to bring you another installment in our podcast, Learning About Learning. At the Mandel Center, we are committed to advancing the field of Jewish educational scholarship, especially scholarship on teaching and learning, in order to make a deep and lasting difference on the lives of learners and the vibrancy of the Jewish community. That's our mission. We know that there's great scholarship being done in the field of Jewish education, but it's not always accessible. And even when it is, it's not always obvious why people in the field of Jewish education should care about it. That's what this podcast is about, making really interesting scholarship on Jewish education accessible and talking with scholars about why it matters. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy learning about learning as much as I do. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for Studies in Jewish Education at Brandeis University. I'm John Levison. I'm director of the Mandel Center, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this ongoing series of conversations with scholars of Jewish education. Our guest today is my friend and colleague, Michal Biton. Michal is a scholar in residence at the Salam Hartman Institute of North America. She also serves as the Rosh Kihila, the community leader of the downtown Minyan in New York City. She holds a BA from YU and a PhD from NYU. She's also an alumna of the Western Graduate Fellowship Program. She publishes broadly in both academic and more popular journals, and she's going to be co-editing a special issue of the Journal of Jewish Education with our colleague Ilana Horowitz on Jewish education through the lens of race, ethnicity, and immigration. That's very exciting. We're looking forward to that. You can follow the link to Michal's page at the Hartman Institute, which then has links to a bunch of her recent work. But today we're going to be talking about her book project about the Syrian Jewish community. So Michal, good to see you. Welcome. Thank you, John. Really excited to be here. 
Great. So let's start with the backstory. I know the book project is a revision of your doctoral work at NYU in Education Jewish Studies. And how did you tell us the story? How did you decide that you wanted to study the Syrian Jewish community? How did you decide how you wanted to approach this particular research? Yeah. Well, when I started grad school, I never thought I wanted to study Syrian Jews or Sephardic Jews. I, I wanted to study memory and academics and things like that, actually. And then I had this funny experience of encountering in a very serious way the field of sociology of Jews in the U.S. And the more that I would read about Jews in modernity and Jews in America, I had this very powerful experience of thinking the Jews that I am most familiar with are not represented in this research. I moved to the U.S. from South America, and my immigration assimilation story into American Jewry was inside a Persian Jewish community. That's like my first initiation to American Jewry. And I would read all these books, and there was an absence there. And I want to just sharpen something. It wasn't only that some subjects were missing. I kept thinking there's all of these theories and ideas and ways of conceptualizing possibilities in America that we are missing out on when we don't study these different populations. So that really moved me to think that I wanted to study one case study of Sephardic Jews from Middle Eastern Muslim-majority context and try to understand their experiences in the U.S. I chose the Syrian community because it's a group that has been in the U.S. the longest in terms of what qualifies under what I just said, because it was known by outsiders as somehow having defied all assimilation theories about American Jews. So I was really intrigued by it. And ethnography was the best path to do so because there nobody did like the research of um, compiling historical records. So I figured that setting the people right now, the contemporary setting would be one way to try to get at the questions that were intriguing me. Yeah, so this it's really important, Michal. What I hear you saying is it's not just that the community is understudied and is not represented in the scholarship, but actually because it's not represented, the prevailing theories seem flawed. And we're trying to sharpen our understanding of social processes, religious processes, community processes. And so you're arguing, if we look at this case, we're going to sharpen those theories. We're going to understand some things we didn't understand before. So help me understand, what's the, at the 30,000 foot level, what's the general argument of the book? What do you want people to know? Yeah, so, and I'll try to make it not to, you know, in my own head academic, but I came up with a theory called non-liberal ethnic practice, uh, in which I basically describe how this one group negotiated America in a pretty different way than how we think of Jews negotiating America, and in a way that has been in tension with certain liberal values like universalism and individualism. So that that's broadly the theory, and I contrast it with some alternatives that we're familiar with in terms of American Jewish experiences. So I'll give you two examples. There's something about, and I'm going to generalize for a second, there's something about certain experiences of liberal American Jews, like individual liberal values or universalistic ones, and trying to seek social inclusion within American social structures that this community kind of didn't choose. I also contrast it with, let's say, more insular Orthodox communities, which I argue developed religious ideology to try to kind of maintain themselves. And I argue there's something interesting, different about this group, which, by the way, other groups might have as well, but we haven't studied them. That is different. That's trying to use something called ethnic practice to negotiate what they view are liberal threats to their continuity as a group. 
Yeah, so I want to ask you to just clarify a little bit about what you mean by liberal, because you don't mean politically liberal, just sort of being on the left. You don't mean religiously liberal in terms of, I don't know, let's say approaches to halakha. You, you have something else in mind. Sure. And I'll just say the term liberal is like highly contested, super complicated. And like, I just want to acknowledge all of that. What I do in my, in my work is I acknowledge the complications and then I make certain choices as to how to use them. So in this particular work, I use liberal in the way that I think many people in this community use it, which, and I don't mean partisan. I mean, there's something about the focus on the individual self, mm -hmm. uh, questions of autonomy, of agency, of equality. By equality, I mean not legal equality. I mean, like, we're all the same. We all want to be incorporated with each other. So that's really what I focus on without yeah. precluding the fact that it's a term that is highly contested. But one of the things that I think you actually do quite well is to sort of name those features. You call them liberal values, but again, that, that term itself could, might be misleading but what I understood you to be saying is in a kind of liberal political theory and an understanding of what communities look like and what the state looks like, there are some assumptions. There are some basic paradigms. And of course, family is important. And of course, community is important. But the basic paradigm is I'm an individual. I get to make my own choices. The state kind of protects me in certain ways and preserves my rights in certain ways to have those, those choices. And all those things are, are enormously important to me as an individual. And you're saying, yeah, but when you shift the frame, when you start to look at a particular really strong ethnic community, it starts to look different. Is that a fair characterization? Yes. And I'll just say, I'll acknowledge that in the past decade or so, I have been most influenced by Muslim scholars of Muslim populations who come and basically critique certain liberal assumptions that become embedded in research apparatus, right? So if you're a researcher and you want to study, let's say, women in Egypt, but the only way that you conceive of feminism or empowerment is through a very specific Western liberal, again, whatever that means, lens, it's not even a problem of like disagreement. It's that like you're just not going to be able to understand this population, how it functions, what are the values there and how, how it works. So that's part of what I'm arguing. And part of what I see here, and I could contrast it again, without generalizing too much with some liberal Jewish communities, the most important subject in this group is not the individual, it's the community, right? That's the most important subject. That's what people in this community like try to protect. There's roles that you play if you're part of this group. So that's almost what has the priority. Of course, it's messier and people negotiate and there's exceptions. But I do think that there is a contrast that can be drawn between this and between a moral discourse, which very openly puts the individual at the center. And that's yeah. how the individual gets actualized. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned uh, Saba Mahmoud, for example, um, a very, very important and influential work. For me, one of the reasons this is so intriguing is in some of my own work, I've also tried to think through this question of the role of communities in education. And it's actually really hard to do. One of the kind of default moves that theorists make when they're thinking about communities and education, the default move is to say it is good for individuals to be in communities. And so right, it's good for them to be embedded in communities. That's a healthy way to live. So this is a healthy way to support the individual. I actually think it's true, but it makes clear that we're still talking about the individual. We're yeah. still talking about the individual flourishing. And it's hard to kind of maintain our focus on the community, which is which I think is what your project is trying to do. Yeah. And I do think that there's other collectives. And I'm not saying they would say this explicitly, but part of what you could intuit from their dynamics is actually say the community matters and should be privileged, even when it hurts the individual, right? Because that's actually as like a, a higher, we have a moral responsibility to maintain it and to put down like our own individual needs 
needs if these are going to hurt the group as a whole. Yeah. So we call today's session How Jewish Communities Educate to try and focus on this. And actually, empirically, one of the things you found from all of your data collection is that people continually talk about the community in the Syrian Jewish community. That's the they talk about Syrian, they talk about Sephardic, but they also talk about the community. They use it very regularly, even though they also acknowledge that there's some fuzziness around uh, mm-hmm. around the boundaries, which itself is is fascinating. And the title for the particular chapter that I want to talk about is Community as This, Community as Practice. So what do you mean by community as practice? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I was so frustrated when I started this research because I, I kept hearing like you know, the community and then I'm like, what is this thing? Is there like somewhere a website that has a definition? Is there a court, a bedin that kind of puts a boundary? Is there anything that can really help define it? And I, I really couldn't find it. And I was very frustrated. I, I'll say that I had a really great conversation with uh, some Mizrahi uh, philosophers in Israel who helped me think differently and who basically said, that's not a bag. It's like the system that this actually tells you something about what this community is. And I started to realize that there's something fascinating about this group in which it functions in a way that is not made explicit or that is not like made into like an ideology or something that you are like an explicit contract around it. That sounds a bit abstract. Let me tell you what the best metaphor that I've used to explain this is that of a family. If you think about a family, let's say like a nuclear family, an extended family, we don't have like a definition of it, right? There's no website. There's no explicit contract. There's if somebody asks me, tell me about your family. Like I, I might not have it all thought out. Mm-hmm. But the family itself has so many dynamics and expectations and obligations and kinship and messiness and and, and it's very thick and and it's powerful and there's all of these practices that constantly strengthen the family or could weaken it. So so that's the best metaphor that I've had to explain what this community is. That it doesn't take this model of like trying to tease out. Think about for example. If you have a denomination that wants to explain these are our tenets of faith, it doesn't do that. It doesn't have anything official in writing, contractual. It's much more implicit. It's much more about a practice that is constantly being negotiated and that ends up refining the community even without defining it explicitly. Not only is it not explicit, it also has the potential to evolve, right, mm-hmm. without legislation in the way we might think of, you know, a more formal organization, but it also can evolve. And all of that informality and all of that fluidity doesn't undermine the fact that it's real for people. Right. It's enormously important. Okay, so I want to I want to turn to this question of the community as an educating institution. So how does that happen? What does it look like when the community educates? How does it help people think about their aspirations for their lives and what's right and what's wrong and the moves that they should make and the what they should hope for in their lives? How does it do that? Yeah, I'll start off by saying you said that there's not so much research about communities as you know educative ecosystems. I agree with that. I would also say that I think of communities as being different from each other. Like I wouldn't say each community educates in the same way or functions in the same way. This community, the way that it's set up, which is like geographically concentrated, institutions within it, social network within it, talks of itself as like an extended family with nuclear families embedded in it. Uh, and it also sees itself responsible for formal educational institutions like day schools. These are viewed as serving the community, right? And trying to inculcate community values. So I think of the community as this sort of like ecosystem, like you're saying, that evolves organically in some ways, Mm -hmm. that has some boundaries that are clear, some that are fuzzy, and in which individuals in their daily interactions are reinforcing to each other what it means to be a member of this community. There's something there about like, you know, a conversation that I might have with you or, or I need help. You help me. 
because we're both part of this community. And I personally see that as educative, that from very little, you experience this. And it's like you're getting all of these messages, some subliminal, some explicit, that kind of tells you this is what it means to be not a good citizen, right? But this is what it means to be a good member. And you see it all the time. And people are constantly like volunteer. There's so much volunteering and so much of it is parents taking their kids. And this volunteer events, like I took my kids a couple of months ago and I was also observing. And it's so much fun for children and the kids don't end up doing that much. But you you begin to see that at like a young age, this is like a family activity in which you go because it's what families in the community do. Right. And in which you have all of these values embedded. So I'll, I'll say one more thing. I find education both helpful and challenging. It's helpful because I think I really do believe people are socialized and educated here. But also I do recognize that I use it in like a super broad way mm-hmm. and that you can then end up saying, well, everything is educational. Everything socializes everything shapes you can go all the way to like Bourdieu and like his theories of like habitus and and things like that so I recognize the fuzziness even as it feels true to what I'm seeing yeah Right. There is a potential to say, well, if everything is education, then then why are we even using the term? And I find it particularly helpful to be thinking about sort of the basic questions. How do people learn to become the kind of people that they are, right? To think about themselves in certain ways. They're not born this way. And we can assume that if a particular, you know, Syrian child was born in in a non-Syrian family, they wouldn't be this way. So obviously- like me, I have Syrian ancestry, but I grew up in South America. You know, I'm different in many ways. Right. And then you married into into the community, which is uh, yet another another layer of the complexity. One of the things you write about in this chapter is the gendered nature of the different scripts that are so present in the community. So I want to drill down on that. And um, I guess part of the reason to drill down is because this is one of those areas where there is a kind of stereotype of what, I don't know, traditional leaning communities, communities that's, that present themselves as being more traditionalist, one of the stereotypes that people have. So the stereotype is, let's say, men are active and women are passive. Men have power, women are powerless. And you want to, if I'm reading you correctly, you want to disrupt those stereotypes. So tell us more about that. How does the community teach its members not just to be Syrian, but also to be women or men members of the community? Yeah, well, first, let me just respond to what you said about what I'm trying to do. I think in general... I don't like stereotypes and I, I try to show the complexity and it's like a messy project because you want to defy stereotypes, but you also don't want to pretend like there aren't actually different trends going on here and like really interesting things that are different. But I did discover like a lot of the rumors or stereotypes that I heard from outsiders to the community are just totally unfounded. I was being told like girls are married at 15 and nobody goes to college and like all of these things. And that's just like not the reality in any way, shape or form. At the same time, you walk into this community in pretty much any sphere and you notice really strong gender scripts. That's the word that I used and a gender binary and expectations. And it affects pretty much every single area of individuals' lives, whether it's in the religious sphere, the social one, the professional one. I'll say one thing. One of the ways that I think about it is that the whole metaphor and the whole notion and the whole reality of family is very much intertwined with what this community is. Both the community as a family and also the community as an extended family filled with lots of nuclear families. So if you are so bought into these notions of like traditional families, then it is almost like a logical conclusion that gender and gender norms are going to be such a powerful part of what it means to be part of this community because it occupies such 
a key part in what it means to be part of a family. I think it would be helpful. Can you just give some of the examples of what does it actually look like to be, what's the male, a little bit of the male script, a little bit of the female script that you saw really so clearly? So let me describe it and I'll say it's a generalization. There's so many disclaimers and exceptions. Okay. But in terms of Syrian men, when I would speak with them, interview them, observe them, their main obligation to be like a good man in this community is mainly to be a good provider for their family. They have, and that comes with like a whole host of obligations in terms of the networks that you have, the money that you earn, the way that you are able to then support institutions in the community, uh, et cetera. Yeah, so it's not just a provider for the family. It's actually a provider for the community. That's actually yes. the, yeah. mm-hmm. the social capital, very much related to that, to the extent that like a PhD is not really respected so much. You don't really make any money in comparison to like real estate, right? at least Mm -hmm. some folks in real estate. The other facet of this is also there's like a very powerful norms and expectations around formal religious obligations. So like you're expected to be literate in what it means to be part of a minyan, of a quorum of, of, of 10 Jewish men who can carry on a traditional service of, of being able to say Kaddish, you know, the mourner's prayer. So I would say to me, that's a bit secondary to the provider, but it's tied into that. Yeah. And I would say that the formal religious leadership of the community and the formal philanthropic leadership of the community is overwhelmingly male. Yeah. So that's like a very almost like simplistic portrait of what I would say are the main expectations. You left it out. So I just want to clarify, are you suggesting that individual religious ritual performance is not part of the script? And this is like a different chapter that I didn't send okay. you. And I think I'll just tell on one foot. I think in this community, the thickest, most important expectations are those that you do in a communal sphere. Yeah. There is much more flexibility, variance, interesting things happening behind closed doors. So there's almost like there's a public sphere out there in mm-hmm. America. There's an individual sphere, what I do at home. And there's like the community. community. And that's where the most important things happen or, or where they matter, at least yeah. for what I just yeah. described. For the women, what's the, yeah. what's the female script? Again, and I'm, there's so many exceptions here, but for the woman, the most important script is to be a good mother and homemaker and uh, to support your family in a way that is dignified. Now, again, just to be very clear here, this is not exclusive of other things. Most of the women that I know and that I've interviewed or studied, they go to school, they study, they have jobs, they lead really rich, fulfilling lives that often have much more freedom than the men mm-hmm. because they don't have the same financial pressure that the men have. But in most of my conversations, Again, there's exceptions in most of them. It often comes down to, well, how does this interact with my ability to like, you know, shape my family and nourish my family in a particular way? So I would say that that's almost like the most important script. And then again, it interlays with a variety of other expectations. And I also say like the level of lay leadership of the woman in this community that I've seen, I have been like taken aback by women just starting like schools and centers and like helping and like, it's just like, kind of like immense, many of them, I think, because they didn't have the same pressure to pursue financial success for their families. So they actually like geared their forces to constructing other other institutions. So again, there's, of course, norms, but it's also not the stereotype that you mentioned, the powerful man, the passive woman. Yeah. And as I'm listening to you, Michal, I'm thinking even the construction of home as a private space is not actually accurate. It's not really a private space in the way that we may think about it in kind of, I don't know, a Western liberal context. It's almost like a quasi-public space, given how central the home is for community gatherings. And uh, am I, is that accurate? Yeah, I would say I'll, I'll give two responses to that. 
it, it is private in the sense that like on the most side, when I think about like deviance and what gets you kind of like, you know, receive negative social consequences, when you do things that are assumed to be in private, like no one's coming after you. That's what I mean. We could talk about some like religious communities in which religious authorities are actually really invested to know what's happening behind closed doors. So that like doesn't exist here. There's a lot of like, you know, that's fine. But you're right. There's this whole layer. There's like, I, I talk of it as like an almost like an aesthetic. What does a nice Syrian home look like, right? It's right. supposed to be welcoming. It's supposed to feel really comfortable. There's supposed to be certain food always available. But not saying that everyone does this, but these are like the expectations. And I've learned to notice an aesthetic. Like when I walk into a home, it's almost like I've, I've kind of learned to identify, oh, this is like a Syrian style, what I'm seeing in front of me. And there's like a huge emphasis on hospitality of wanting your home to be just like comfortable, both for other families and also for your kids. Like so many moms told me, like, I want my kid to love their home. It has to be the most, the best place for them in the world because I want them to always come back. We're not going to have a chance to tackle many good questions that came from the audience, but I do want to ask, there's one question about the polarization of political discourse in the U.S. and how that's affected the community. Um, you've written a little bit about this elsewhere, but I wonder how you would respond. How has the polarization of political discourse affected the community? Yeah, well, the I don't know if I can say exactly how it affected it, but if I were to describe what I see in terms of political trends, this community as a whole has definitely, if I were to speak very simplistically, moved to the right politically. I would say that if you look at just um, voting patterns and also discourse by community leaders, the community is overwhelmingly Republican and overwhelmingly, I, I live inside this community right now geographically, and I say that I'm in like a red island in a blue island. So yeah. that's the, the way that it feels. What I would say is that when you have a collectivist morality, it comes with a lot of blessings and a lot of trappings. And those depend on where you're sitting, right? What is a blessing for one person might be a curse for another. But for me, at least, one of the trappings or one of the challenges is that that often comes with a very powerful push towards homogeneity, towards conformity, towards saying we all kind of think the same way and we support the same things. And that's part of what it means to be loyal to this collective. So there's definitely very strong political views. I would say that under the surface, I find a lot of diversity when I speak to people, but it also functions a little bit like not like a block, but there is some communitarian aspects of how it affiliates politically right now. Yeah. So we're almost out of time. I want to ask my last question, which is, what do you think Jewish educators should learn from this book when it comes out about, you know, Jewish education in, in lots of other settings on the assumption that, you know, we're not all, all going to be teaching in the Syrian Jewish community? What should Jewish educators learn? Yeah. I mean, I could go to so many places. I'm like, you know, I have so many dreams, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'll just mention a couple of them. One of them is I part of the intervention that I want to do with this book is to actually destabilize notions of diversity. I don't want it to be enough to just bring in a classroom one lesson on, let's say, like one Sephardic community. I want educators to take seriously that ethnic, racial, immigration, diversity, and other forms of diversity often are interrelated with moral diversity and with different ways of thinking about the good and with different ways of thinking about what Judaism is. Like, what does it mean to be Jewish? Mm -hmm. How do we think about this project that we're part of? I think that that's good, not only because it makes educators be more reflective about what they're trying to do, but if you're serving a community that is itself diverse and you have diverse learners, then you can be a much more, a much better educator when you have that uh, 
front and center. So that that's one thing. I hope that educators can think a bit more about the ecosystems in which they're part of, mm-hmm. uh, have the role of parents, the role of like extended families and communities. And yeah, and generally, I just hope that we can incorporate more voices that we weren't familiar with and use them not just as things we're curious about from the outside, but also to reflect on what we are doing ourselves. Wonderful, wonderful. Michal, thank you. Thank you. It's it's always great to talk with you about your work. It's wonderful to see this work developing. Thank you all for joining us. I want to encourage everyone on the call to check out the Mandel Center events page to learn about other upcoming events. And as well, you can also find recordings of past events. Thank you all for joining us. Michal, thank you very much. Take care.